You're listening to the Body Literacy Podcast, your connection to the art and science of feeling really good body, mind, and spirit. I'm your host and holistic health coach, Jen Mayo. If you've never experienced truth and freedom inside your body, an amazing adventure is about to begin. Healing happens in community. Body literacy is your tribe. Join me in discovering the keys to fearlessly unlocking your body's innate intelligence and resilience. Turn on to the wisdom of your body as we connect your wellness dots by exploring whole person healing from neuroscience and nutrition to sexual health and sleep. Join the wellness revolution and start speaking your body's language. Before we get started, I wanted to introduce you to the most profound and impactful piece of health technology I've encountered in three decades of navigating my own health challenges. LifeWave is a wearable health technology that uses your own light energy to optimize your health. If you've followed the Body Literacy Podcast for any period of time, you likely already know that I'm a bit of a walking science experiment. I have a passion for exploring how time-honored ancient healing arts can be coupled with modern science and technology to optimize our health, wellness, and vitality, and how we can empower ourselves with the knowledge and optimization of our own onboard wisdom and healing potential rather than viewing the human body as a problem to be solved. LifeWave's phototherapy patches use light to stimulate the body's natural healing systems. By applying LifeWave's non-transdermal patches to specific points on the body similar to acupressure, where the patch covers the skin, infrared light emitted from the body is reflected back into the tissue, stimulating specific regions of the brain and tapping into the body's own flow of energy and the ability to heal itself. LifeWave patches are not intended to treat any specific condition or disease, but rather support the body's own innate healing mechanisms. When we take a holistic approach to health and consider there is really only one state of dis-ease in the body imbalance, rather than the 32,000 diseases defined by conventional medicine, rebalancing the body and supporting our own built-in capacity to heal becomes a journey of ease rather than a frustrating and disempowering struggle to control dis-ease. Energy medicine operates by a different set of rules than material medicine. I talk about experience-based medicine a lot, and LifeWave is simply a therapy you have to take for a test drive to feel the benefits for yourself. To learn more or try them out, just visit genmayo.com slash LifeWave. Today, I'm joined by Molly Muchow and Haley Schur of Verdant Hollow Farms, a regenerative multi-species farm located in Southwest Michigan. Together with the farm's owner and business partner, Susan Flynn, Molly, formerly a chef, created a vision of a place where people could gather to learn about the magic of nature and find peace in an often chaotic world. Molly brought her vision to life through her passion to create a healthy ecosystem on the farm through responsible animal care. Haley is an agroecologist and holds a master's degree in conservation ecology from the University of Michigan. She believes in using science in service of the food sovereignty of her community. Her many diverse experiences, including working in animal behavior and welfare, wildlife rehabilitation, ecophysiological research, and permaculture management, have helped form her current approach to farming that emphasizes welfare-focused husbandry, the use of diversity to build autonomous and resilient systems, and a commitment to social and ecological integration. 
Today, they share their insight and hands-on experience with regenerative agriculture as a paradigm shift in farming and the food scene as a means to foster health for both the planet and all of its inhabitants. Cultivate balanced and abundant ecosystems, connect with nature, and inspire connection between people and communities. Welcome today. We've got Molly and Haley with us here. Um, Just a brief introduction on how I met Molly. I've been buying my pasture-raised eggs and chickens from her for a couple of years now, Um, and I think I probably... I'm one of the few customers who likes to buy up all of her chicken feet um, for the chicken stock that I make at home. Um, so she probably runs out of that and uh, has people who uh, who don't get to buy their chicken feet because I'm always buying them. But um, anyway, welcome to the show here today. Um, we're so excited to have you. There's so many great things that I'm looking forward to talking to you about um, with regards to regenerative farming and buying local. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. So excited um, to be here. I'm excited to have you. So I am. I there's so many things I want to get to. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but um, there's so many fun things to talk about um, with regards to regenerative farming. And I think there's there's such this big difference that people don't understand between industrial agriculture and um, small local farmers, especially. Um, so I guess if you can tell me a little bit, um, Molly, how Verdant Hollow started and um, how you got into it, because I know I know a little bit about your history um, and your background career wise. And you weren't originally a farmer, correct? Uh, no, um, I was not. <laughs> Only since 2016. OK, uh, so. My husband and I are uh, both from the Chicago area and lived in the city. Um, And I was a chef and he was a teacher for Chicago public schools for the majority of that time. Great. Um, uh, But in my culinary career, I always appreciated like supporting local organic farms and seeking out like the highest quality ingredients. and so that kind of plays into how we ended up here on the farm. Uh, so I work for a, a lovely human in the city of Chicago. And uh, the time was coming, like all kinds of things happened. It's a long story, but basically we decided that we kind of wanted to create something um, in Southwest Michigan together. And a farm was always a front runner. And the more we experienced this area up here and saw farms, um, we decided that was kind of what we wanted to do, um, as well as create a space where people could come and learn and Mm -hmm. find retreat. Uh, And so in like late 2015, we kind of started searching for opportunities and found this property, um, found this property that we're at now at that time, uh, and only looked at that one property or mm. this one property. Cause as soon as we came here, we, we knew that it's where we needed to be and needed to create. Uh, so in summer of 2016, my, my husband and I left, like sold our house in Chicago and moved to the farm, um, to live and work here full time with our three boys. Great. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we 
we didn't have any farming experience, uh, but both of us were always like, we rehabbed houses together. We had, you know, did landscaping on our houses in Chicago. We always had projects going and we're very project oriented. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I always tell people we didn't have experience farming, but there's definitely skills that we had, um, that contributed to like the ability to take on this project. Okay. What was, what was that learning curve like for you? <laughs> well, I think it's always going. I don't think we're through it. Ask me that question in like 30 years. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, one of the things that we love in life, I think both of us are lifelong learners. Um, uh, like that's what we're most passionate about. And so this, what's been so incredible is that there's always something like every day we learn something new on the farm, I think. Um, and the way that we've created this project, um, it seems like even the problems are learning experiences, which yeah. is kind of like a permaculture basic ideal is that there's always a solution out of a problem. And it typically it turns out better than it would be if you didn't have the problem in the first place, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. And so, so we're always learning. We have like, we use, I have a mentor, a livestock mentor who I buy our sheep from. Um, we had a farm hand in the beginning that had a lot of history with farming. So we learned a ton there. And then YouTube books, uh, conferences, you know, we just kind of take it in as much as we can. And then kind of everyone that's worked here has shaped the project as well in terms of what we learn, because everybody seems to bring something new to the farm. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah. And how have you, how have you resourced finding the right people to partner with for bringing um, what you want to the farm? I think just putting it out there. We tend to, we list the job, we, you know, any job employment employees have been found like typically through like good food jobs or word of mouth. And we've really attracted like a really interesting group of people over the last five years, just because mm -hmm. we do so many different things here. Uh, so that's been really fun. So great. Great. So Verdant Hollow is considered a regenerative farm, correct? Or am I using the wrong terminology? No, I think I think that's the correct terminology. So okay. we um I think that's like a big term right now mm -hmm. um, that can mean many different things. Um, and those I, I like to say more that we use regenerative practices just because like we're not, we're actually part of a pilot program for regenerative par farms right now through a greener world, which is who we have our animal welfare proof certification through. Okay. Okay. Um, and so there's like some certification program. So before I could say like, we're a regenerative agriculture farm, I think it'd be nice if we were actually like had a certification for that. Um, and I, hopefully this in 2021, sometimes we will, um, they're just starting their program now and they've, um, we are part of a group that they're, we're like helping them build the certification basically. Okay. And th this is a greener world. Yeah. So that's a non-for-profit organization and they do, uh, 
non-GMO certification. They do animal welfare approval certification. Um, I think they do like a salmon certified salmon program. Uh, and now they're going to have this regenerative agriculture certification. Oh, great. Great. And I'll see if I can look that up and maybe include that in the show notes for people if they want to find out more information about that. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, um, I always tell people that because, you know, we we're, we have our first cow, we're just starting to get into beef. Um, but so when people are like, we're going to get some really good beef, right? So I'm always like, go on a Greener World's website. Okay. Um, it's a great source for products. Okay. Um, and I, I couldn't recommend I mean, I would buy from anyone who is certified through them just because I know how strict their standards are on animal welfare. Uh, I think it's like considered the most strict animal welfare certification process in the United States. Oh, great. That's great Uh, to know. And so purchasing from them is like a really good deal. Okay. Okay. And I'll just, I'll give a little bit of background of further how you and I kind of connected. So I was um, a vegetarian for 26 years. Um, And uh, towards the end of of that, my body was literally like screaming for meat, um, which I'm also a type O um, blood, which apparently Mm -hmm. those are, are, yes, more common that we need more meat. Um, and I was not the healthiest of vegetarians anyway, but probably one of the saving graces, um, was that my, my now ex-husband's grandmother always used to buy us, um, uh, eggs from a local person who just had chickens in their backyard or whatever. Um, and I didn't know anything about pasture raised anything and what the difference was back then. Um, I certainly do now. Um, can you tell us a little bit more, um, A, about the difference between, you know, regenerative farming practices and industrial farming um, and what the difference is, you know, in a variety of ways, including nutritional um, for animals that are raised on pasture versus in a factory farming setting? I'm going to yeah. let Haley take that. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to touch on that. <laughs> I think when you're thinking overarchingly about the biggest difference between industrial farming and more ecological or regenerative farming, you can think about basically that industrial farming treats the farm like a factory. And it's a factory with living things, but it very much looks at it as there'll be, you know, an input and then an output like an assembly line like a factory, not like an ecosystem. And then regenerative farming says, this isn't a factory, it's an ecosystem. And there are things we'd like to get from the ecosystem, but we need to recognize the systemic and cyclical nature of the things that are happening here and the systems that are at play and that it's much more complicated than just a factory. Okay. So that's kind of most broadly, I think a helpful way to think about it. And then there are all the practices that would go along with that. And What I think that ends up yielding in terms of livestock is that when you're looking at it as a system that livestock are a part of, you can consider things like not just what you want to get from the animals, but but their welfare and um, the nutrition that would come for that. It all links in. So when you can fit them well into a system that they would belong Mm -hmm. in and put them like in a pasture. Yeah. Then you are ticking all those boxes at once, which is the really convenient thing I think that ends up happening when you're farming ecologically 
And when you're basing your farming in regeneration, it so nicely takes care of all those things at once. So when you say, I want this farm to be able to regenerate the land, so it would make sense to put the animals on pasture, it's good for the land, it's better for the animals, and it's better for you. So why not move towards this? And it ends up encouraging their natural behaviors. So they love that. And then when they're getting sun and grass, it's kind of a combination as opposed to industrial farming where they would be mostly inside. They're not getting very much sun and they're certainly not getting grass. So they're eating a lot of soy-based, grain-based feed. And so there's less vitamins and minerals than associated with that. So the big ones would be like vitamin D and K vitamins that Mm -hmm. are really important for people. Um, And they have a different uh, fatty acid profile. Okay. So when you're eating a lot of seed-based things for humans or for animals, and that's what their feed would mostly be, would be based in like corn, soy, then you're going to be higher and the animal's meat will be higher in omega-6s as opposed to omega-3s, which is much more inflammatory for people. Um, And there's also a lot of phytoestrogens that can be problematic for human health associated with eating a lot of soy. And it's not that good. It's not an efficient use of the land to be growing something that people could eat. It's much better to have animals eat grasses. That's what's naturally growing in the land anyway. So it's a lot less work. And it's much more efficient for them to eat something and to turn something that we couldn't eat into something that we can. So to turn grass into meat is a much better use of energy than to turn corn into meat. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I love this idea of there being an ecosystem, um, which obviously doesn't exist in a factory setting. Um, Can you speak more to the animal's relationship with the land and what that does for the land as well? Because I know I've read a lot about um, things regarding soil science and the the microbiota, if we will, of of the organisms living in the actual soil. And maybe you could maybe even make the distinction, like what's the difference between dirt and soil? I mean, this is part of the decision about why, because you guys weren't planning on originally having animals really were no. you? yes so. uh not on the scale yeah so our original intention that is that we were going to have more produce um and we hire first things we did was hire uh two really awesome awesome gentlemen um peter bain and keith johnson they're permaculture designers um to come and uh work like hike the land and create a plan for us um and what we realized was that due to our like we're very hilly and the soil is really heavy where we are because we're a little bit off the lake so we have really heavy clay soils um as well as the fact that the most of the like what was once tillable mm-hmm. acreage on the farm was uh conventional mono monoculture cropping. So they were mm-hmm. um, you know, using pesticides and herbicides and um also just corn and soybean, heavy till management um of that corn and soybean and no cover cropping at all. Um and so taking in all that information, we realized that the best thing for the land would actually be livestock management, um, multi-species, um, livestock management to start 
rehabilitating soil. Um, and so, you know, the first thing we did was put in cover crops um, mm-hmm. before we even had livestock. Um, Wait, just to back up real quick. What does that mean exactly? <laughs> okay. So <laughs> cover crops. Oh gosh. We got, we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so cover cropping is a way of managing, um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Crops basically so that you can, things that don't take from the soil, but actually feed the soil, um, as well as like hold on to that top layer of soil. Cause with the mono, with monoculture, there's so much that just gets washed off in the winter and the rain months when there's nothing planted in the soil to hold, to hold that soil, it will just completely get washed away. Um, and so first thing, like I said, we add, we put in annuals, um, and perennial cover crops just to kind of put something in place to hold the soil that was there. And then also start feeding in feeding that soil that was existing. so those exist more for the health of the soil rather than something that you would harvest and sell well so you can so there are i mean there's so many different th- plants that you can cover crop with um okay. but um that's the great thing about cover crops is that there's multi-uses for it so we okay. always plant cover crops that are feeding the soil holding the soil in but then also make great forage for livestock um, okay. or great, make great hay because we okay. make a lot of our own hay here on okay. the farm. And so those are kind of all the things that we're looking for and also are beneficial to pollinators and just overall ecosystem health. Okay. So it's more as being part of the whole ecosystem, like you were talking about before. Yes. And we do manage all of those acres, um, like in a no-till method, which is we don't till the soil so that we're not disturbing this top eight inches of um, microbes. Okay. And why is that important? Because I think like most of us who have like farming in our mind, that's one of the first things that comes to mind is that image of the, the soil being tilled and then, you know, seeds being planted in the ground that way. But what's, what's the difference between no-till farming and till farming? So with tilling, it's a it's really do, the degree to which you're disturbing the soil. And equipment was always designed to favor tilling up until now. And it goes hand in hand with truly using a lot of chemicals. Because once you have disturbed the soil to that extent, you are making a great bed for weeds. You're disturbing the community that's there. So what is going to thrive is actually going to be weedy things that establish quickly and easily because you're disturbing more long-term things like perennials. And so as agriculture really became something that was hand-in-hand with utilizing chemicals as large-scale agriculture really is. Mm -hmm. So you're using chemicals, you're needing to... um, yeah, as you're using chemicals and planting annuals, that's what I was going to say, and really relying on annuals, you're disturbing the top layer of soil to get those annuals in and out. Okay. And um, it actually causes a lot of problems because you thinking to that system, you're disturbing any robustness of the natural system that's there, which includes the homes and communities of these things that are too small to see, but are very much a part 
of keeping the soil healthy and that therefore keeping the plants healthy and then having healthy animals that are eating those things. So it's just really tilling can be thought of as just the degree to which you're disturbing that soil. Okay. And I do feel like that goes going back to what animals eat and grass fed versus grain fed. Um, when you, one of the great things about grass fed is that one, we could produce being a no-till farm. We can manage um, perennial, mostly perennial hay fields that we make the hay ourselves. So very little footprint other than the diesel that goes into the tractor to okay. run the equipment. Um, but then you start going down the road of grain fed animals and it's not so healthy for the animals, but then you're also the footprint from somebody else has to, you know, most grain is you have to use tillage for grain management, even in organic grain production, there's heavy tillage typically involved. There are people that do low till or no till grain production, but it's, it's very rare. Okay. Um, so when you look at the footprint of like one, you have to, somebody else has to till their fields and grow that grain and it has its own impact. And a lot of times it's soy and corn, even if it's organically produced, right. um, you have a lot of soil disruption through that. And then it usually has to come from far away. So you're getting, you know, grain that's grown all over the United States. Okay. Um, and then you're, you know, the carbon footprint of that grain getting to your farm is pretty extensive. Okay. Um, so I feel like yeah. there's so many layers of it. I try, I mean, I get most of our grain from locally from a, like North, Northern Indiana, okay. um, which has been great because we do feed grain to our chickens and our hogs okay. on some extent, to some extent, even though okay. they're pastured and forest raised. Okay. Um, so. And and heavy tilling is one of the things in soil that is most related to it releasing a lot of carbon as opposed to storing carbon. So soil can be an excellent carbon reservoir, which is very important in greenhouse gas management and climate change that all ties in. So if you want more carbon to be held in the soil as opposed to released atmospherically, reducing tilling is a really important way to do that. And this is one of the ways that animal agriculture actually can be super sustainable is that if you're keeping the carbon in the soil and encouraging more carbon to be stored in the soil, mm-hmm. then, actually, then actually greenhouse gas emissions and carbon neutrality is very possible with animal agriculture, but it requires pasture raising them for that to be true. Gotcha. Okay. So there's a lot of ways that there are environmental um, impacts uh, for the more industrial model versus doing something that's more in congruence with with the way that animals and plants were intended by Mother Nature to uh, to be raised and grow. Yeah, totally. And coexist uh, together. And coexist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which I think is a great, I mean, right now it's in the agriculture world, there's a very hot topic about yeah. vegan. A lot of people promote veganism as like the best solution for the environment and it's pretty controversial (laughs) Um, um, but I I do think that people that are choosing that diet lifestyle have to consider the environmental impact of like heavy tillage and the carbon footprint of how food gets to their plate things that are more processed things that are grown far away that you know they depend on all that you know needs to be taken into consideration Right. Right. All right. Um, And certainly there are some nutritional um, 
things that are also controversial on the vegan end of mm-hmm. the spectrum too. But mm-hmm. um, I was actually just having a conversation about um, amino acids and how it's not possible to get um, all of the essential ones from plant mm-hmm. sources versus um, meat ones. But I think mm-hmm. so often when we hear this meat versus plant conversation or debate happening amongst people, um, what usually gets left out is what type of meat we're talking about. Because Absolutely. Many people equate conventionally raised meat as being the, the it is, that's their only idea of what meat is, but the mm-hmm. nutritional profile, the environmental impact um, and the animal welfare issues that go into what, what you're obtaining from a um, pasture raised animal that's been raised with respect and, and caring um, versus one that's been re- raised in a factory farm environment are two completely different things, um, especially from a nutritional standpoint. And I feel like um, the medical conversation that even has around whether people should eat meat or not really leaves that out of the conversation. And and it's like comparing apples to oranges, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. But, yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's all excellent information. Um, I did want to ask, like, can you expand a little bit more on like how pesticides and herbicides and industrial fertilizers are used in conventional farming? And why does that negatively impact the health of the, the consumer and of the soil? Yeah. So pest- <laughs> pesticides and herbicides, as as much as they can be very specific to certain mechanisms, people need to understand that they're designed just, and this is just the simple fact, they're designed to kill things. And they're not as specific as people think they are. We just don't have that level of control with chemical specificity. And so things are used that are meant to kill insects or to kill fungi. Things are used that are work much like an anti antibiotic wouldn't you so even if they don't even if it's not at levels that would be lethal to a human it is at levels that can impact what can survive in your gut when you're eating something that has been treated with an herbicide or pesticide and this is what institutions that are trying to protect protect consumer health are really looking for is would this be lethal to a person in the or would this can we directly link this to cancer which is very hard to prove in medical studies even if that is what's happening so this is what they're looking for on the most macro level but what is now being shown is that oh actually you have a lot of living things in your gut that need to be able to survive for you to have good health and that just because the pesticide isn't immediately toxic to you being able to live another day doesn't mean that it's not impacting your gut in ways that could be leading to things like cancer but could also just be leading to things like this prevalence of anxiety disorders mm-hmm. so the more we learn about about the microbiome and the gut-brain connection and the gut-just general health connection and understanding that pesticides and herbicides are designed to kill things. And then you are consuming them in levels and there are allowable levels for all of these things in your food. And so once it's in the soil, not only is it sprayed on the plants, but once it's in the soil, they take it up through their roots. And we only know so much about the effects of these things. We only know so much about the human microbiome so far. And so I think a principle of a little bit more caution just mm-hmm. makes sense as we're ferreting out all of these um, connections. Yeah. yeah. And it, to expand on that a little, it also plays into soil health. 
and the ecosystem in the soil. Um, just like you put those things in there. Like we didn't see an earthworm. It took us two years before we saw an earthworm in our pastures, uh, which was kind of alarming. Um, And because, uh, you know, how important the insects and microorganisms are in soil to like breaking down soil and, you know, converting like animal feces to soil and yeah. Right. This is right. why I have Haley here to do the science. Right, I know. Yeah. <laughs> She's brilliant. Well, I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you mentioned it's that. It's amazing. There's a really, in, in science, they talk a lot about this thing called, there's this um, chemical treadmill in farming. And it's pretty sinister in that the more chemicals you use, the more that you'll need. Yeah. Because as you kill things in the soil, you have less of a community to defend also. I mean, some of the things in the soil aren't pests. They're predators of the pests. And so the more you kill things in the soil, the more you'll have outbreaks of just the particularly nasty things that are resistant to your chemicals. Mm -hmm. They're evolving resistance over time. So the more chemicals you have, the more you'll need, the more pesticides you need, the more fertilizer you'll need. And so very conveniently for these major companies, a cycle of dependency is absolutely created and such that farmers can't keep up. And and you do see this in these rising things like terrible rates of suicide amongst farmers because it is just becomes an incredibly economically demanding cycle and one that impacts their health too. Yeah. Right. It's pretty, not unlike like our humans and livestock experience with antibiotic use, Um, you know, it's similar. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick break from today's show to tell you about my favorite magnesium supplement, Remag by RNA Reset. Unfortunately, the nutrient density of food is so much lower due to depleted soil that getting enough key nutrients from even organic food is difficult in our modern industrialized times. Magnesium is in my list of top five must-take supplements because it's vital to so many functions in the body and can be pivotal in overcoming a wide range of chronic ailments. I often talk about how stress is a root cause of most chronic conditions. The links between magnesium and stress are astounding and magnesium deficiency is associated with higher stress levels. Magnesium deficiency is linked with fibromyalgia, autogenic stress, physical stress, photosensitive headaches, and chronic fatigue syndrome. Well-absorbed magnesium can also help lower blood pressure, help with chronic inflammation, prevent migraines, and improve insulin resistance, anxiety, and depression. Magnesium is a key nutrient in thyroid function and for the production of thyroid hormones. Remag by RNA Reset uses stabilized picometer magnesium ions that absorb completely at the cellular level. With Remag, the magnesium goes to your cells where it is needed most. RNA Reset is a trusted brand that is passionate about true health. You can find Remag on Jen's Favorite Things link at jenmayo.com. Be sure to use the coupon code JenMayo at checkout for 10% off of your purchase. And now back to today's episode. Tamali, can you tell me um, why it is you you have multi-species animals on the farm and what purpose does that serve versus maybe just having one variety? Okay. Uh, so going back to kind of why we chose to have livestock and um, in, in addition to producing like small scale vegetable herb and flowers um, was because the land needed to be restored. And there's 
different there's a lot of different there's like we have a good mix of wetlands and hardwood forests and also pasture um, on the farm and so all of those areas um, can be regenerated through different types of livestock Um, and then in turn having several different types of livestock they kind of work together so I'm just kind of we'll break down kind of the process we use um, most of what we do is grass-fed lamb. That's like our probably like the majority, the most of what we do. And so the sheep are wonderful for pasture management. They're like the best <laughs> lawnmowers. So we grow, you know, perennial and annual forage. They like broadleaf forage um, out in like our open pastures. And then we rotate the the sheep. And now we have one cow. We're starting to add that into. <laughs> Um, and so through rotating them, that helps us keep their parasite levels down as well. And one of the things going back to chemical use, um, a lot of livestock farmers, they just routinely use dewormers, um, in their animals, which is like giving someone antibiotics, whether they, they have a reason to or not. Um, and so by rotating them, you're breaking the parasite, um, your, the parasite stru- like uh, cycle, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, and so they're always eating something fresh. They're never over grazing an area where they've also left a lot of feces and therefore they're not re consuming eggs, um, parasite eggs. Um, and so they kind of work on that area for for us. Um, and I've also chosen a breed of sheep that's, you know, has been bred to not have a high parasite load. Okay. Um, also helps a lot um, in not having to routinely give them that chemical. Got it. Um, and the cow also, now we're starting to add some more cattle because the cattle kind of eat a little bit different than the sheep, kind of similar, but also a little different. So they'll be able to, um, help stimulate those pastures a little bit better. Actually, the saliva from cattle stimulates the growth of grass. Okay. Um, and so it kind of will help us along there. And then we raise uh, goats and pigs. Goats get raised mostly on pasture, but also we run them from the through the woods because we have a lot of invasive species on the farm in our woods, multiflora rose and honeysuckle. And the uh, goats are excellent at eating back those uh invasive species in the woods so they um without the use of chemicals um and then we also raise our hogs in the woods uh we raise heritage hogs seasonally and they are wonderful at like uprooting all of those invasive species and it also makes them very delicious because they eat all the (laughs) acorns and walnuts that come off our trees in the woods. Um, And so we have some areas we'd like to expand on this um, as we grow, but we have some really, we have some areas in the woods where like we've ran hogs um, and then goats and then put hogs back in and then goats back in. And that does a really nice job. Like, the difference is huge in terms of what, you know, now we could hike in those, in that, you know, that area of the woods when, you know, three years ago, we couldn't do that. Okay. So many okay. invasive species. I know. And I've been out to the farm to visit before. And that was the one thing that, you know, kind of 
surprised me is I've never really, you know, we have this vision of what a farm is in our head and I've never really seen animals foraging in the woods before. And it was so cool to see the animals out there versus (laughs) kind of what I typically imagine that to look like. So that's, that's fun. And um, I've never seen happier animals. Like I will say, (laughs) you know, it's, you know, when we think of uh, that was, you know, going from vegetarianism to eating meat again was, that was such a huge hurdle for me to overcome Um, was a, I didn't know how to source um, to source meat that came from a stuff from a place that, that wasn't factory farmed. Like I knew how to go to the grocery store and that was it. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was such a big hurdle to just figure out how to find out where to find animals that were raised well. Um, and then how to, how to purchase that, that kind of meat. Where do you, how do you sell your, your products? Uh, so all different, we have all different outlets. Um, we have an online store that anyone could go to at birdandhellofarms.com. You can click shop and um, place an order online and uh, come. I, you know, right now we're kind of contactless pickups for people. So I set up a time and then somebody comes and they could just pick it up um, at their leisure. Uh, we go to the Purple Porch Co-op Market, which is a great source for local produce, local meat. Um, and that's in South Bend. Uh, we love that place. Um, so we go there on Wednesdays, uh, like in the spring, summer and fall. Um, I go to the Chicago suburbs. I do a delivery out there like once to one to twice, once to twice a month. And yeah, that's kind of the the extent of it. Mm -hmm. All right. So do you have any advice for listeners who might be new to shopping local to where, what resources they could try to investigate to try to be able to find um, more farmers like yourself in the area? (laughs) Well, I think farmers markets are a great way to go and meet farmers. I think, you know, all certifications and all that aside, I think that the people really need to trust who they're buying their food from. And the best way to do that is to meet a farmer and talk to them in person and ask them questions. Yeah. Um, so I would start with local farmer markets. The Animal Welfare Approved the Greener World is a great place if you're looking for proteins. Um, and also Food Animal Concern Trust. Uh, they also are an excellent resource. We actually just received a grant from them this year for a handling system. <laughs> so that was very exciting. Um, but they're out of Chicago, but I think they have contacts all over the country. Uh, and I'm trying to think what else. We... Yeah, those are, I think those are the major ones. Cause I, I will say, I think that if people are having a hard time finding meat that's local and regenerative and ethical, they're not like, these are all great resources and they probably can find something, but they're also not wrong. It is, it is hard to find and it is much rarer than finding someone that's like, doing small scale veggie farming in an organic and diversified way. And I think that there are a lot of barriers to entry for people wanting to do livestock farming. It's just more time and cost upfront that has to be able to be put in. So it's much more likely to find people with these goals doing things like vegetables. So definitely farmers markets and all those web sources are great, but also to have people understand that it is rarer and harder to find. They're not imagining it and to make sure they're, you know, 
voting for politicians who want to restructure subsidy system and grant so that people can really be investing in this because it is much rarer than other types of small scale farming. Okay. And the more you support small regenerative farms, the more we'll be able to exist and provide product yeah. for you. I mean, that's that put your money where your values are, I would yeah. say. Cause exactly. Exactly. I totally see that. Um, I, I've heard arguments in favor of industrial farming, farming versus more regenerative models. Um, with regards to how many people there are in the world, um, do you think Regenerative agriculture is scalable enough to feed the masses of people. And what do you think the typical industrial farmer's resistance to making the switch over to regenerative practices is? Well, to kind of answer the last part first, it goes into what we were just saying that I think for a lot of people, the switch is very hard because industrial farming is highly subsidized. Mm -hmm. So it's not that those, it's not that that kind of farming is more efficient or turning a better profit. It's that it's subsidized by the government because it's lobbied for by huge businesses that have interest in farming being done that way. And so they have money to give politicians who then decide the subsidy system. So that kind of farming is not more economically viable. It's just subsidied, subsidized heavily. So okay. if that subsidy system was switched over, farmers would happily switch. You know, the, the even the people that have been farming in an industrial way for a long time, if they were subsidized for something else, I think that they would have no qualms about switching. I don't think they're tied. I don't think they think what they're doing is better. I think it just makes sense to them because they get paid to do it that way yeah. by the government. So I think that that would be a easy, relatively easy way to switch that over is the subsidy system. And then what was the first, I already oh, about So, so, part. so we, and we were kind of talking about this before the interview about access and food for the masses. Oh yeah. Um, and so we were saying that like, there's a lot of food waste. Yes. And yeah, in terms of, yeah, in terms of regenerative agriculture, being scalable, being able to feed people is that we're already, I think a lot is falsely drummed up in this kind of conversation about scarcity to encourage farming to continue down this trajectory. And I don't think the numbers really bear that out. We're already producing so much more food than gets eaten. Food waste is just, I don't know the exact numbers, but the percentage of food that gets just thrown away mm-hmm. is insane. And we even right. saw this, I mean, COVID supply chain issues really brought this into light with what was happening mm-hmm. with slaughtering animals and not being able to get them to slaughterhouses and tons of fruit and vegetables are wasted annually because it's more expensive when prices fall to take them to the processor mm-hmm. than you'd be able to get from the money wise. So people will just let huge fields sit and rot, but sometimes people are paid to not harvest their grain because that's a commodity. So it's in the commodities market. So depending on what the market's doing, farmers will sometimes be subsidized to not harvest that grain, to not flood the market. So we're really not distributing or even harvesting all the food that we're growing. So we grow plenty of food. And in most parts of the world, small scale and what is kind of termed Peasant agriculture is what's feeding people mostly anyway. So if people were able to, more people would have to grow food, certainly, but on that scale is actually 
how most of the population already is getting their food. So we, there is a precedent for that for sure. Okay. It also would make food more accessible too, because food raised the way that we raise it, it is, there's a higher cost. And so the price of the, our meat is going to be a lot higher. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, one of the goals of anyone raising produce or meat regeneratively is to make it more accessible to lower income individuals right. and families in the United States. Right. Um, and so if, if these programs were funded better by the government, I think that, you know, yeah. and encouraged, I think it would make it easier because I, that's, that's an issue for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think a lot of it comes back to like what you said earlier, what do you value? Um, and we've got, you know, particularly in the, the current climate, we've got, um, there's a lot of questions coming up about, you know, what do we value about our health and, and how we achieve that health? Um, you know, and, and does it make sense to, to prioritize the cheapest possible meat and, and vegetable you can buy or, um, and maybe, maybe you can go into this a little bit more, the nutrient density that's available in organically raised, um, vegetables and, and the meats you kind of already touched on earlier, but, um, I've seen statistics where the, the nutrient density in something that's raised organically versus something that's conventionally raised in the till model that you mentioned is so night and day different um, that you would have to eat something like four or five, whatever times the amount of produce to get the same nutrients that you would get out of that organically raised product instead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it, you know, it's still, and it does, it's just, that type of food is not accessible um, to a lot of people in this right. world, um, right. especially in this country. Um, it just, be, um, I mean, we have an issue with food deserts and I mean, living in Chicago on the South side, um, it, I, I saw it all the time. Like the, you know, just the, the price is just, it's too expensive. And does you know, that, does that come back to the subsidies conversation that you were talking about before where so. yeah. we're subsidizing so. the wrong thing essentially? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes totally. Yes. Okay. Um, so, I mean, cheap food is cheap for a reason, right? Right. Um, right. Yeah. What would be your advice to young farmers who are considering whether to go the industrial route or try to get more into the regenerative practices? Um, and is, is there's much opportunity? I'm looking at this, not just from, a, not just from the, the practice standpoint, but from the entrepreneurial standpoint, is there as much of an opportunity for profitability in the regenerative model as there in, is in the industrial model? Um. I think so. I mean, we're in a unique position because we have a, um, a business partner uh, that helps support us. Um, and we also had the benefit of starting our agricultural career um, based on a regenerative model, right? I never had to convert anything that we had, you know, I wasn't farming for 40 years. And then I decided that I was going to make this switch. I, you know, man, the people that do that, I mean, they're incredible, yeah. right? Like how brave and, mm -hmm. you know, to take on something new like that. So I just have to put that out there, both yeah. of those things out there. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there is a movement happening right now. Um, and I, the, in terms of the, I think the startup cost is higher, but I also think that, um, 
your profit margin is higher. Um, I think in a lot of the things that we're producing, because people are willing to pay more money for a good product. Yeah. Um, and I, I did notice a huge uptick in sales at the beginning of COVID um, because people all of a sudden were like, where's my food coming from? Right. <laughs> right? Like I want to, I want to go directly to the farmer. Like I have the ability to call Molly up and be like, Hey, I need eggs <laughs> and a pork shoulder. And it means I don't have to go to the grocery store. You know, she's willing to deliver it to my door or I could just go to one person. So you're, you're like a one person or one to two person chain of contact. Um, and I think, that was a big wake up for, for consumers. And so hopefully that will inspire, you know, yeah. other people to go down that route. Yeah. I don't know anything. I mean, Haley came to us. She's yeah. amazing. She joined yeah. our team this fall. Oh That's She's a young nice person young in farms. agriculture. Find a great farm <laughs> Amali. Get yourself a Molly. I highly recommend it. Oh God. But I, well, I do think to the, to the value, I do think that my advice would be pursue, try and find a way to creatively pursue livestock. I mean, if you can't find a beautiful place, like I have found to work at then, and you're going to start your own operation, you know, with livestock, you could potentially keep your day job at the beginning because it's different than plants in terms of when the time demand is. So, you, you know, it wouldn't be easy, but you could do it at the beginning before you're turning a profit. And then I do think profitability long term is much better with something like livestock. People really are willing to pay for bacon that's been raised humanely and just so delicious. And mm-hmm. that makes people understand <laughs> spending more money on that. It makes right. sense to them. So I think that that would maybe be the advice is focus on livestock, play the long game and kind of think about it in, in those terms. I think that's an under underused niche by beginning farmers to try and do that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, even you could do, you know, with an acre to 10 acres of land, um, you could have livestock and manage them intensively. And it's a lot, I would say it's less labor intensive than yeah. vegetable. Organic vegetable production is, a, it's very labor intensive. There's um, a, is there a bigger learning curve with that? Absolutely. And yeah. I think that, like, I know a lot of people that raise livestock and also have full-time jobs. I don't know if I know anyone that grows organic vegetables and also has a full-time job and they're selling produce. It's just very intensive. So if you are, if you're like, Hey, I still have to work this job. I do think it is something you could do in addition to that to start out. I think it's more intimidating, but just know that there are a lot of resources that you can use and that there are resources, resources like the extension service that's meant to be a public resource that I think is underused by younger people and Mm -hmm. to really ask for the help you need to like really know that there is a lot on YouTube. I mean, it's, it's amazing what's available now and what's available. Right. And people you have access to on social media, you know, people, I think, talk a lot about the negative impacts of social media, but can you use it for good in your own life as a way that you have access to experts mm-hmm. in a way that's unprecedented? So to try and leverage that that's free to you, I think can be really a beautiful way to, to take back the power of those types of resources. Right. And I think too trying to leverage value added connections as much as possible. It's a good way for people to get more money for what they're producing. So to not just try and sell the meat or the grain or whatever you've grown immediately, but to, or your apples, but to say, can I find a local brewery that wants to use these and make cider? Can I find 
really like a fine artisanal bakery that wants to use this to make fancy bread, like to really try and find people in the food scene Mm -hmm. where the foodies are going that are going to make a kind of luxury product out of what you're doing, I think is a better way to make sure you're getting as much value as possible for what you, for this wonderful thing that you've grown because Mm -hmm. people just interact with food differently in that state than kind of in its raw form. So can you partner with people in the industry? I think that's more resilient and more fun for everyone. Yeah. Well, and that just increases your community. I mean, in Southwest Michigan, we have like, it's small, but we definitely have a little food scene happening here. And we have the most amazing connections of people that are all really supportive of each other. And especially I think in like the regenerative or organic food culture, people are really want to connect. I don't know if it's like the type of person the type of people that go into this career field, but everybody is very open to sharing and like sharing information and resources, um, even equipment and, um, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of things that are really helpful, especially when you're first starting out, you need a lot of support. Yeah. Or somebody that you could be like, Hey, I have this, you know, I know like two other people that raise hair sheep in the area. Um, you know, and just being like, Hey, I got this weird thing going on with this. You do you, have you seen this before? Like, cause we're all just learning. And, um, that's like a huge value. I'd yeah. say yeah. make friends, make friends in the community. And most people, most people in our farming community want to make other friends and, you know, share information. So, yeah. 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 And I think there's a lot to be said just for the energy that goes into, um, farming in the way that, that you're doing it. Um, you know, it's going to sound hokey, but you know, when you make something with love, <laughs> the product of it, the product of it is so you're speaking much our language. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I almost mean it in a literal sense, like the energy you put in when you're vibrating at a certain level is much more than at the lower frequencies of the yeah. industrial model kind of offers. Um, I guess lastly, I just want to touch on um, kind of back to the whole monoculture versus diversified um, uh, farming models. When we think of industrial food, um, you know, and I'm going more into the junk food sector, most of what is being raised in a monoculture setting is really being raised to go into processed foods, right? So we've got like corn and wheat and sugar and so forth. What can we glean from that with regards to eating, um, you know, from the farming model to and moving from eating um, industrialized processed foods more to a whole foods and clean eating model that I think there is a much bigger uh, there's a lot more momentum with that now than we saw 10 years ago. And people are gravitating toward that, but maybe they just don't have the right resources to get there. Um, do you think we're seeing sort of a reflection of um, a reflection of that in the farming practices and maybe more of a pull towards the regenerative model versus what we were seeing 10 years ago? Yeah, and I think that that kind of goes hand in hand with what we we're just talking about a little about how there is this kind of resurgence, both in farming and in the food scene and people wanting to eat more whole food and more food that's fresher and local and seasonal. And that that has been kind of a shift in the restaurant scene and in people's palates, okay. palates too, that has, that goes beautifully with a shift to regenerative agriculture and shifting from 
a monoculture that's just corn that then you're going to have all these weird byproducts that nobody wants. So let's like find a, like eating food where it's just been like, what you're eating has been engineered to be like, oh, how are we going to use this weird syrup that we have left over from all, all this corn? And like, <laughs> that's, that's the truth, like, right? <laughs> and instead of being like, oh, what would be good for people and then working from there. So I think that, yeah, kind of a shift in where people are wanting to get their food from, what our palates are kind of craving again, this kind of return to food that's more recognizable and not just like a Twinkie. So yeah, <laughs> that goes together. Yeah. I do think, I, I mean, I, I think maybe it's just a circle we run in, but um, I do think people are like starting to value slowing down more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I hope they are. I um, hope so. Because I think with that comes the time and interest in cooking for yourself and, um, I think a lot of it is just people have lost their way away from the kitchen. People don't know how to cook for themselves. Right. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, people are intimidated by ingredients and they buy a big, beautiful pork roast and they think they're they're going to ruin it somehow. And I think um, as people slow down and become more interested in their health and home cooking, um, I think those things will become less intimidating. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, if you come by meat from me, I'll give you a recipe because I was a chef in my previous life. Exactly. Oh. exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Right? Shameless little yeah. plug there. No. <laughs> and I think this might sound kind of, I don't know, out, out from left field, but I think for women especially, and I feel like in my generation, this is really happening, like a return to the kitchen as a place mm-hmm. of something that you could be doing something that's like lovely and beautiful and empowering and not something that's taking away from your power. Like, I think that that's kind of a reclamation of the kitchen mm-hmm. for everyone, but mm-hmm. especially I for women. I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. So it just feels like for a generation, a few generations ago to have convenience foods was like their liberation to not being tied to the kitchen, being able mm-hmm. to work, being a working woman and saying, well, then I have a frozen dinners. Like that's how that was really sold to mm-hmm. people was this mm-hmm. is your liberation from the kitchen. I think it really did feel like that to women for a while. And so right. I think there is a lot of, uh, this is kind of woo woo, but a lot of like healing taking yes. place and everyone coming back to the kitchen in men feeling like that's a space where they can still ex- express themselves and that it's a space for everyone mm-hmm. it's kind of I love that idea of the reclamation like in in so many ways I think that that really hits home and um I hope a lot of people can take something away from that well I've loved our conversation here it, is there anything <laughs> right See, is, isn't she lovely? <laughs> lovely. We could hang out forever. Uh, I know. <laughs> right. We could, this conversation could keep going. Okay. But. Yeah. Sorry. We won't. We'll cut. No, okay, no, 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 no. <laughs> if our listeners would like to learn more about what you do at Verdant Hollow and maybe any kind of programs you have coming up or whatever, um, where can they find you online? Can you tell us a little about, about those and your social media contacts and all that good stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so our website is, uh, Verdant Hollow Farms. That's an S at the end at, um, dot com. Sorry. Verdanthollowfarms.com. Um, and, uh, on Instagram, you could follow us at Verdant Hollow Farm. Uh, and typically those two things play off over each other. We like to put announcements on our Instagram page or our right. Facebook page. Um, but at our website, you can find a link for our online store to purchase products. Um, as well as uh, we're going to start adding some programs to the farm this summer where you could come and experience 
um, the farm through tours. We're going to have pasture picnics available. We're partnering with River St. Joe on catering. Um, oh, great. Picnics. Um, yeah, out in the fields. We are going to have some hiking experiences uh, and start adding uh uh, overnights and a yurt we're building and a teepee that we're building. So we'll oh, be able to cool. stay at the farm for a night, uh, as well as, uh, on farm workshops. So like foraging and, um, natural dye workshops, um, oh, great. things along learning opportunities, um, along. Yeah. So get outside and play on the farm this summer, hopefully. Awesome. <laughs> Sign me up. I love it. I love All it. Right. So. <laughs> oh, also yoga. We're going to probably add, oh, farm yeah, yoga. some yoga days. And is it going to be goat yoga? I've always wanted to do oh, goat yoga. Oh, this is the question. <laughs> Everybody wants the goat yoga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not no, even sure not what, it, what it is about goat yoga. It just sounds cool. Man, right? People are so into it. I'm going to tell you that that is probably my number one question I get asked when I say that we have goats. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants a goat to jump on them during Savasana. Right. So, that yeah, doesn't sound... Very, yeah. I'm not real into it. I don't yeah. know. I mean, knowing goat. I mean, I love. I we love goats. Um, yeah, <laughs> they can be nearby. They can watch. They could from be, a distance. They could watch from a distance, but um, yeah. So not no. yet. Okay. okay. I don't know. Maybe I'll. All be right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah. No. Thank you for coming on. We're so glad you agreed to do this, and um, I'm excited to share all this good information with our with our listeners. So, uh, thank you. And uh, next time we will maybe have you on again and and talk about some. Maybe we'll be talking about goat yoga then. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never know. Never say never. All right. All right. Awesome. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Any statements and views expressed by myself or my guests are not medical advice. The opinions of guests are their own and the Body Literacy Podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. If you have a medical problem, please consult a qualified and competent medical professional. As always, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Body Literacy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and sign up for updates over at genmayo.com. 